0: Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we dig deep on how to stand out from the crowd by building bridges and breaking free from the comfort zone of colloquialism, industrial language, and jargon to find new words, new thinking, and new approaches to ignite action, mobilize a wider network of ambassadors, create customer loyalty, even in a downturn, and build better internal culture. Hi, I'm your host, Torin. I'm bilingual and throughout my life have straddled two cultures, Norwegian and American. I've worked in 10 different industries spanning 25 countries. I have seen firsthand the power of diverse collaboration to create impact across cultures, countries, and the political divide. On this podcast, we will bring on notable leaders from all walks of life to teach us and provide us tools on how they have moved beyond their comfort zone, and create amazing breakthroughs of profit, opportunities, and impact. Now let's get started. Well, welcome to Moving Beyond Your Tribe. This is part two of our part three series on NASA and marketing communications. And Richard, welcomes Richard Jurek. Welcome so much. He is the CMO for a real estate organization in Chicago. What was the name of it?
1: The Inland Real Estate Group. It's a large uh, real estate investment, finance, and commercial real estate company. Been around for about fifty years. About $20 billion in assets.
0: That's not the reason why we're talking to you today. <laughs> the reason why we're talking today, which I'm so fascinated about, is NASA's marketing communications and the people behind it. And I think what's so fascinating is that it's actually an engineer that probably was the biggest communications marketing guru, which was George Lowe. And George Lowe wasn't just that, but he was kind of like the silent partner behind the silent person that really made it happen. And probably Apollo going to the moon and all the major missions would never happen without him. And you have written a book about that. And it's called The Ultimate Engineer. And I thought we'd talk a little bit about him. He's an amazing leader. And tell us a little about George, because he came from, from was it Germany or Austria? Was it Austria? From
1: Austria. Yeah. Yeah. He George Lowe is one of those classic ghost in the machine figures, the the, the behind-the-scenes mover and shakers that uh, set things in motion and that people through the course of history often forget about. And to your point earlier, without George Lowe, it would be argued that NASA wouldn't have picked the moon as one of its major goals. And uh, it was George Lowe's report and work. He was considered the original moon zealot behind the scenes at NASA that put the report together that landed on Kennedy's desk when he was looking for a big program after the Bay of Pigs to turn things around that said, We can go to the moon, we can get it done in a decade, and this is how we'll do it. So and he it was the joy
0: of the imagination of through his writings, he must have been a good writer too.
1: He was an amazing writer, and his family and most of the people I interview said that they think it was an artifact of him being not a native English speaker. So he came from Austria. He was a German speaker, native German speaker, and uh, he learned English over there, but really became fluent in English when he immigrated during the war to the United States. And uh, he used to have a green pen. He called it his Green Hornets and he would edit all the PR and communication memos. And you could almost hear in the back of his head, if the engineers did their math the way you were sloppy with your adjectives and adverbs, we'd never get to the moon. And he was always (laughs) correcting things for precision and for different angles and different perspectives. And for him, language was a tool. It was as much of a tool as the engineer's tool of math, of the computer, of the calculator. And he embraced, and why I call him the ultimate engineer, he embraced not just the engineering side, but the full picture of a, of a manager, of a communicator, of a leader. He was quiet. He listened first and spoke when he had something to say. People respected him. But yeah, he very auspicious beginnings, was born in one of the wealthiest families in Austria had Jewish heritage. So during the Anschluss, when the Nazis rolled through and took over Austria, the family, they were living in a castle. They had one of the largest agribusinesses in the country. They exported around the world. They lost everything. And they escaped Austria three weeks before Kristallnacht, which is considered the start of the Holocaust. And uh, they emigrated first to Switzerland, then to the UK spent many harrowing nights uh, in the bombing raids of the UK. And then uh, his family, at the time, US immigration policy only allowed 1,400 people from Austria a year to immigrate to the United States. So it was two years of waiting as a child. He was about 11 years old in London, practicing his English, avoiding the bombings, the night bombings, and uh, they booked passage on what would have been a luxury liner, but was a uh, a refugee rescue ship at the time uh, that took him to the United, him and his family to the United States, and the movie that uh, was playing to entertain the guests was uh, The Wizard of Oz, and you can imagine this young boy fascinated by machines and machinery on this ship leaving, all blackout period because you had to be careful of the air raids and the bombings and everything else, sailing to this new world in a star field like never seen before, and uh, Judy Garland singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And here's this 12-year-old boy who settles in the New York area, has an affinity for math, language arts, and goes to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York, uh, gets an engineering degree, gets exposed to aeronautic engineering, a, a relatively new field as, as the jet engine is starting to be developed and come come into play. His studies are interrupted by the war he goes back to Europe uh, and becomes a citizen through the process of being drafted and part of the uh, military does his service comes back and at the time NASA hadn't been formed yet but the NACA the national association of uh, the, the national aeronautic committee uh, was doing research on early aviation uh, wind tunnels and in- increasing speed, accuracy, fuel efficiency. They were working on some of the early X-plane programs That's and right. the early rocket programs. And George needed a job and he landed there and he met up with the right people at the right time. And uh, those were the early people who formed NASA. Uh, people like Abe uh, so- time. He was <laughs> in his 20s, he was in his early 20s. What? Well, and all those people at NASA at the time, whether working in communications or engineering these these were these were the the millennials, right? These were the these the were the Silicon the yeah they they were the Silicon Valley people, right? They were at the cutting edge of technology, of aeronautic technology, but they were pushing the envelope on on speed, on design, on where we could take things, trying to break barriers, and they were driven by their new discoveries more so than by salaries, by wealth, by by stock options. They were really driven by achievement and results and a national pride in, I think, born of the war, but a national pride of developing our industrial base, our technology, and maintaining leadership in the world so that we would never succumb to the horrors of war like we did.
0: How did he come up with writing this document that inspired John F. Kennedy to say, we're going to the moon within 10 years?
1: Yeah, uh, it started with his role assisting a gentleman by the name of Abe Silverstein. uh, Lowe settled in Cleveland and was working for the NACA. Abe was his boss, who was taken to Washington, And Abe was one of the first people brought to Washington to help form NASA after Sputnik, put the fear of God into everybody, that the Russians had better technology, that they had the high ground, that they could put uh, satellites in orbit. And and we were woefully behind in that effort. And uh, Eisenhower set up this civilian organization called NASA to lead the charge, to coordinate To leverage the experience of the NACA and build out of that the National Aeronautic and Space Administration on which our space future would be based. And so Lowe was in Cleveland, and Silverstein kept turning to Lowe for research and others in Cleveland. And Lowe was such a great writer, he was such a great communicator. He cut to the chase, he asked the right questions, focused on the right details that Abe felt he needed him in Washington. So he pulled George to Washington DC to work on what would eventually become the Mercury program. And Mercury, our first launch in space, a single astronaut in a capsule that can only house a single astronaut was considered by Eisenhower and everybody else to be a terminal program. It was just to prove we could do it. Hmm. Eisenhower hated space. He thought it was a waste of money. He would rather invest that money in missiles. He was afraid of the cost. And everyone involved with NASA in this effort had concerns that once we got into space with Mercury, that there would be a change in Washington, there'd be no reason for NASA, and all of this would go away. So George got involved with committees looking at a long range plan for NASA. And there were crazy ideas. There was already talk of a space shuttle and space stations. There was talk of going out to the outer planets and building.
0: How uh, does that imagination happen? I mean, it's like. Out of
1: literature. You, You know, you've got all these people who grew up reading Jules Verne, who grew up with Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. And so you have these scientists sitting around brainstorming. What are we going to do? Well, you know, as a kid we had space stations, so why don't we do that? And as we pointed out so in marketing the, the
0: imagination mind, that created the reality of moving forward and creating that plan and that paper.
1: Yeah, the the antecedent to NASA in space flight is in literature. It goes back going to the moon goes back for centuries. Right. And it planted a seed in a lot of the early rocketeers that that was their driving goal. A von Brown, as a child, dreamt of going to Mars and doing those things. And so the antecedents were in literature. They were in film. They were in old radio serials. But that didn't interest George Lowe. And that interested other people. For George Lowe, he was a, he was a, a pragmatist. And he was a man who felt that you shouldn't waste your time or the resources but there should be a reason for doing things. And when he looked at all these crazy ideas, the practical genius of George Lowe was saying, look, the moon is close enough, yet far away. It's hard enough, yet achievable enough for something that we can do with a reasonable dollar cost and a reasonable amount of time. The other stuff, impossible goals won't happen The easier stuff, so what, why bother? But the moon he settled on as capturing the imagination, being a goal worthy of the risk to life and of the cost, but more importantly, the national prestige and the risk if we didn't succeed. Because he felt that the engineering challenge to do all those things, would provide the biggest benefit here on Earth in terms of our technological uh, base, advancements in science, engineering, and material sciences, and more importantly, biosciences, how the body reacts to these adverse environments and what can we learn from that. So packaging all of that, he started pushing from the late 50s, well before Kennedy was even on the picture for the moon to be a long-range goal for NASA as something worthy of the risk and the cost. And he emphasized constantly the benefits here on Earth for that cost and risk. And he felt, particularly after Kennedy was elected and before he became president, George Lowe felt seriously that those ideas needed to be written down a reason for being in a long-range plan for NASA beyond Mercury needed to be in a package ready for the new president. And so he got permission from Abe and his other bosses to put a small committee together. They worked night and day on this report called the George Lowe Report. And it's one of those moments in history where all the stars aligned, where so many different things happened, because Kennedy himself was no fan of space flight. Like Eisenhower, he was afraid of the cost. He wasn't even that interested in it. What he was interested in was the political payback, the beating the Russians, the pushing back of the fear. Well, Uh,
0: Kennedy was because of Bay of Pigs and kind of like, I need something new.
1: I need something big. I need something new, big, exciting. And I would argue also something from the younger generation. Again, it's all of these 20-something engineers exciting the hell out of themselves about these goals and rockets and getting to the moon and Mars and beyond. And Kennedy's this young president who's trying to shake things up and he's looking for something that can galvanize the country and the world around American prestige, strength, and technology. Gene Cernan wrote in our introduction to marketing the moon, we were marketing the United States and our way of life, and our technology, when they would go around the world and they would broadcast live any of these missions, it was a geopolitical game as much as it was anything engineering, as much as it was anything about some goal of walking on the moon. And George Lowe was very cognizant of that as well.
0: So really, George Lowe's secret weapon was being a good writer.
1: Fabulous writer, fabulous communicator, not only being able to write. He had that-
0: it was his clarity. What was it? What was it that because it's science communications, like that's kind of what I work when I work. I research on climate and science communications. And one of the things scientists do is they become too complicated and they're not yes. able to distill it down to a point where you can capture the imagination. So what was George's significance of his writing? What was it?
1: I think it was his atten- It's two things. The best writers listen before they speak and think before they write. And secondly, they pay an inordinate amount of attention to detail, to picking the right word for the right occasion, for a precision in language that pays attention to the audience, that engages a specific audience for a specific purpose. Whether it's lobbying Congress to approve your goal or to fund your goal, or whether it's to engage a specific audience in the country or around the world, George's unique skill was his ability to listen and quickly synthesize, cut through all the noise, and get to the heart of the matter. And he then echoed that in his communication. And it's not that he wrote, you know, Dr. Seuss, Garanimal like and in basic language, he's a very sophisticated writer when the time called for it. But he could also put it out in simple terms that were easy to understand and were relatable. And he often predicated his writing around simple questions, sort of a Socratic method of what do we want to achieve? Well, if we want to achieve A, B, and C, we need to do D, E, and F. And so he would walk people through the logic starting from the beginning all the way through to the end, where their engineers and scientists around him, I think got bogged down in the details, got bogged down in showing off what they knew, uh, the, how deep they could go in those details. And George was very selective of who he shared those details with. So he, he was a natural born writer and communicator. He was a great speech writer. Yeah, his speeches are phenomenal. I I quote in the book a lot from his speeches, particularly towards the end of the book, because he he didn't live very long after Apollo, so he didn't have a lot of time to reflect on the meaning of the things he was doing. It was in his speeches where he would posit questions and ideas that gave you insight into his personality. But end of the day, the people in public affairs that I talked to adored him. They adored him, be, they were they were afraid of him too. Whenever you got his green Hornet, you felt, you know, you got, when your press release came back and it had green all over it, you knew George Lowe, one, read it, and two, uh, didn't like something. Uh, but, he was but secondly- here.
0: This is so funny, because it's like, he was a really, I think he's really the consummate communications person. If you're really going to be a communications leader, you're also a strategist and you know the business that you're in. I think one of the biggest challenges people do is they don't, they communicate and market something they really don't know. And so he comes from the center of knowing and actually writing the report that got Kennedy to say yes to the moon. So he's kind of like knowing the strategy, knowing the details, and from there able to use the pen to inspire and instruct the rest of the people.
1: Even selecting the green pen. Everyone else was using red, black, or blue, and mostly red for corrections. George chose a pen that he wanted anyone within the 400,000-person supply chain that was working on NASA, if they got a memo with green on it, they knew instantly it came from George Lowe. Wow. And they paid attention <laughs> to it. It cut through the noise. And, it, and these green hornets, you know. Katie, barred the door <clears throat> if somebody else started using green pen. They're like, you can't do that. George Lowe uses the green pen. And in an agency that lived on memos pre-network days, that green pen cut through all the noise.
0: So he found he a way right to distinguish himself. So he kind of knew his brand. If you look at it, brand marketing, from your point of view, he
1: knew his brand. 100% he knew his brand. He knew the impact of those green hornets. And he he also knew the impact of the criticism on change, but he also knew the impact of well-sparsed out praise and when praise was due and how a Green Hornet memo gets circulated among many people. And if he praised some action, others will pick up on that. And it was a way for him to communicate in color throughout the organization and stand out among a host of 400,000 people who are all talking to each other at the same time. is fascinating. Just that little bit of detail, among many other things uh, about George Lowe, that makes him stand out as a unique government administrator and communicator to the outside world, but also internally.
0: But what I think is so fascinating is, so you have like the Apollo, you go to you up you, you're up at the moon, everyone has focused on that part, right? And then you come down from the moon. And I thought it was so interesting because he had a really sense of insight that, well, now that we've completed our mission, what's our next vision, right? I mean, he was probably one of the first ones that really questioned what's next in a sense to to almost salvage because it was at that point everyone's cutting the budgets, they're like, we, we've done our mission, it's kind of like now it's terminal, it's it's the end, right? And I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about, because he's got the Green Hornets, he's a great communicator, but he also had this really sense of people and places and strategy, and and the lobbying was quite brilliant.
1: Yeah, he, he was somebody who felt, you had touched on it earlier, about the right person and everybody being on the same page. So the Apollo program around the Apollo 1 fire, which was tragic and killed three astronauts, exposed to Lowe and many in the organization that people weren't communicating, engineering changes weren't being made, Uh, one decision was being made in Washington, another one down in Texas, the capsule was a disaster, and there was no way we were going to get to the moon on time unless everybody was on the same page. So George was charged with fixing that mess, and he was sent down to Houston from Washington. basically. Got a demotion in title, went down three levels to become the project and program manager of Apollo from being the head of human spaceflight, was sent down there to save the program. And George's perspective on it was he pulled together the top twenty some people who were in charge of all the pieces that went into it, and he said, "You will report to me. You will explain to me what's going on. And if you don't understand what's going on, and you can't explain it to me in very simple details, I will replace you. And he went out to all the contractors, he'd make late night visits, he'd pop up unannounced, so much so that some people tried to throw him out thinking he was just a stranger who wandered in. And he would see all of these things being done wrong. And he would hold people accountable and he would not suffer fools lightly because he knew lives depended upon it and so as a as an engineer he knew that he needed to bring everybody on the same page and drive it forward it's the same thing with space the goal of nasa started as a geopolitical one we got to beat the russians to the moon otherwise they will usurp our technological and leadership position in the world and it pivoted once we, people learned Russia couldn't do it and we actually landed, it pivoted to one of exploration and science. And those become harder stories to tell. They become harder stories to engage with, you know, geology and rocks and the hard sciences and low noticed, particularly around Apollo 14 and 15, fabulous science coming out of the lunar samples that we're getting people in the science community community, very excited. But the broader world, a total snooze. They were turning it off. They weren't watching the live missions and announcements. They were losing audience. Apollo 11, for example, had over 3,000 credentialed reporters covering it. Apollo 12, 1,000. It peaked on Apollo 13 again because of the life and death drama. But after that dropped off to 900 and less and less interest. Right there, you can see the death of your product, right? And and, and, and lack of engagement, if we want to use a term.
0: And he revitalized it.
1: Yeah. Well, there had to be something in it for us, right? There had to be something in it for the politicians. And George's emphasis was return on investment, return on an industrial base, and innovation within our economies and so he noticed that public affairs was spending all of their time responding to reporters and ignoring congressional requests for information yeah and again it was sort of, it was this brand journalism and real time marketing crush that was necessitated by the global interest in apollo 11 can that you explain, these, what,
0: explain the brand? Because yeah. I think this is a very interesting point. Because what we were saying is, be up until Apollo Eleven, you have the astronauts being profiled; they're being branded. You have this whole hero's journey kind of a brand, I yep. would say. And then, if you can explain a little bit about what you'd mean about that and how it changed.
1: Yeah. Well, you had the reporters and the public affairs folks that uh, that we interviewed and talked to would tell us that uh, you couldn't pick up a hammer or drop a bolt down in Houston, Texas, or in Florida without the press reporting on it. There was so much interest in the human space program leading up to Apollo 11. And the leading edge of that was the personification of the American hero through the astronauts, who the politicians would use to go around the country and give speeches that the media would use for exclusive interviews uh, and to have on their, their shows that product placement specialists wanted to get capture pictures of them, either in driving their Corvette around or drinking their Tang or wearing their shirt. Uh, You know, even from Neil Armstrong's hometown, a local cheese maker created moon cheese and shipped it off to NASA so that hopefully somebody would mention uh, the, uh, Uh, Ohio moon cheese, so that people would buy this person's cheese, right? So everybody was trying to jump on the wagon, but it was all centered on the astronaut as hero, the astronaut as, you know, John Wayne riding a rocket against the Soviet threat to get to the moon. And what low and a handful of people realized was once we land on the moon, and once all we found were just rocks, for the most part. You know, Buzz Aldrin, the second person to walk in the room, called it a magnificent desolation. The moment he branded it as a magnificent desolation, the story shifted to one of geology and science, not one of exploration.
0: If he had used a different word, do you think you would have changed, or, or, or was it just a reality fact that you made it to the moon and this is what it is?
1: Science fiction turned into science fact. And science fiction was fascinating, right If you would compare sitting in 2001 a Space Odyssey and watching all the computers and the excitement of being in space, which came out at about the time of Apollo 11, by the way, and you compared it to an actual moon mission, you would fall asleep. Long periods of nothing going on. right? There's no color out in space. Early television cameras because we had never done it before were very grainy. It wasn't exciting for long stretches of time. So you did not have the Star Wars, Buck Rogers, 2001 A Space Odyssey experience. And even the broadcast journalists like Walter Cronkite who made that part of their brand communicating that story had to get specially made models and actors and animations to make more interesting what was actually happening in space to keep their audience engaged. And so science fiction converting into science fact became less interesting, was not a movie. What is your
0: reflection on that as as a CMO?
1: A setup of false expectations perhaps, and the limits of, again, what I call brand journalism. Brand journalism uh, is an approach where you treat the PR and communications department like a newsroom. And you respond to inbound demand. And as the lead up to Apollo 11 was happening, you had all this demand from the outside, but it was being driven by a handful of science reporters. And even television, Walter Cronkite's who were geeks for this thing, And it was only engaging about a third of the public. Two-thirds didn't care. But that one-third was so ravagely interested that they confused enthusiasm for support. And that passion of one-third being fully behind you, two-thirds... Yeah, they didn't want anybody to die. And yeah, okay, so we're going to see a person walk on the moon. Okay, we'll turn on the TV. They'll do it momentarily, but then they left. They didn't stick, it wasn't sticky. And that confusion of enthusiasm for support. You know, we often talk about brand ambassadors. There's a difference between somebody just being interested in clicking on your website and looking at the pretty pictures and maybe engaging for a few minutes but there's a difference right when they give you their phone number they ask you to contact them and you can convert them into a customer they weren't handling that part because they were responding to the front end constantly it was it was fire hose response to this massive inbound of information also embedded in Nash's charter was a chief communications officer not a chief marketing officer In fact, NASA was not allowed to market. They could only communicate and educate openly and freely about what they were doing. If they marketed in the sense of tried to influence and push an agenda, they were reminded very harshly that that was the purview of the president and Congress to decide the goals and mission for NASA. And they were put into a box. The marketing was left to the contractors to market their capabilities, their technology. And it was incumbent upon the communicators within NASA to educate and inform, but not curate those audiences, market and influence. And Lowe later on felt what NASA really needed was a modern day chief marketing officer. He pushed for NASA to go to New York and recruit from advertising agencies to engage with more folks in the media, to engage people in literature, to engage Carl Sagan, to engage Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov. He pivoted that towards- That could also
0: be communication, so it could just be that the people that were in those communications department was thinking so much just about being tactical instead of strategic.
1: Yeah, there was absolutely no strategy to it. It's really and it, yeah, it was it was almost 100% tactical and that's the risk of sort of the real time newsroom approach is yeah. if it becomes all reactive and all tactical and you forget the strategic, you do it at your own risk. And there well, needs that's what to-
0: NASA is known for. We haven't really mentioned that in this series, but in, talking with you, but that's what NASA is known for is real-time transparency. And that's what really got them such amazing exposure and branding right. for the u s
1: oh, and it was perfect. And it worked very well for the day. And um it currently works well for the day, right? the what they do on social media, what they do, and you know, the reveal of Pluto uh, and the heart on Pluto in the real time access that we get, I, they're masters at it. And there's, they do so many things so well, but it was on the the future goals and the future applications. And where do we go from here? And the strategy aspect that they really were, were suffering at. And in a post Apollo world, their budgets got ravaged. There was talk of even dismantling NASA. There was, there was, you know, a lot of uprisings and anger around spending all this money to collect bags of rocks when we couldn't you know deliver the mail on time or people were starving in the streets of the cities and and, and that's and George
0: and George was the one that really changed that and so going going to him as we've talked about him as a writer communicator from brand journalism to now this exploration journalism but in between there Before you can get to the exploration journalism, what's so fascinating is he, from the time he wrote the report, has really worked on public affairs, worked on the relationships of everyone to make it happen. And having reflected on that from the way he wrote the report that Kennedy said, yes, all the way to he retired, and you look at the way he engaged the politicians, what have you learned from that? What would you say is an interesting takeaway?
1: The importance of relationships and engagement and not assume things are being done because it's not your job. I think when George got to Washington back from Houston after Apollo, he realized that no one in Washington really knew about the future planning that was going on within NASA. The public affairs department was ignoring responses Two congressional leaders. It was taking weeks and months to give them basic information because they were focused on Walter Cronkite and the New York Times and and getting the latest photograph out. They just didn't have the capacity. They didn't have the staff. And others were assuming, you know, the the public affairs was assuming the administrators were doing it. The administrators were assuming public affairs was doing it. There was no dissemination of speeches, low notice that, uh, you know, One administrator or Von Braun or this rocket scientist or that rocket scientist would give us a a fantastic speech in Minnesota or in Ohio or in California, and it might get a few articles there, but then no one across the NASA chain was reading the speech. No one was making copies of the speeches and handing it out to congressional people. No No one was packaging NASA in a nice package and presenting it around a strategy. The only time any of that ever came together was uh, for the money grab during budget season. And because NASA then became an agency with a track record, it was all about spending a lot of your time proving return on investment on old programs, and very little about generating excitement and focus on new programs, Mm -hmm. because you needed continued funding to keep the old programs going. The congressional people wanted to hold you accountable for what you spent your money on. And very little was spent time-wise, marketing-wise, or messaging-wise on the future. And so Lowe sought to change that. He also sought to slaughter sacred cows, you know. Pivoting from Apollo to the shuttle was a very brave and bold move, but it was something that he felt we needed to do because Apollo was late 1950s, early 1960s technology. And we were in the 70s, moving towards the 80s, and we needed new technology. And so, like he balanced benefits of risks and costs with going to the moon, he viewed balancing risks and costs around creating a low-cost, frequent vehicle that would get us into space on a regular basis in low-Earth orbit that we could use as a launch pad to the moon, Mars, and beyond. It's the exact same principles that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and everyone else is putting on their plans and stair steps to Mars. That was Lowe's vision as well he just didn't have the funding to do it in his grand of a scheme but the shuttle was the first step towards it as well as a space station because what he noticed was that zeitgeist of the time and the us taxpayer and his audiences pivoted away from looking externally outside to the moon and beyond and in the 70s looked inside as bill anders said when he took that earthrise photo We went to space to explore the moon, but what we discovered was the earth, how fragile it was, how important and how rare it was. And so earth sciences in George Lowe's mind, environmental sciences, the first A in NASA, aeronautic, which everybody had forgotten about for the first S, which is space, which comes after aeronautic in NASA. He returned to that. How can we make jets more fuel efficient, quieter, safer, reduce accidents. And so he chaired a bunch of strategic meetings that helped redesign and repivot NASA's mission around a real politic of what does Congress need and want, what are they willing to fund, and what presents for us the greatest benefit on the money they're going to give us and the risk to life that we're going to expend to do it. And that's where he settled on the shuttle because he firmly believed that without reducing the cost to access a space and without increasing the regular access to space, spaceflight should have only been the purview of robotic missions. Human spaceflight then becomes too expensive. And you would have to almost get rid of human spaceflight. So he has this strategy,
0: but how? Because he's been an amazing relationship builder from the time he wrote the report to Kennedy, right? I mean, he's been in every major decision point in, in the NASA program. I would say he saved Apollo 11 and, and, and made sure that we came to the moon. He saved the NASA program after Apollo 11. So what did he do that was so exemplary that we
1: can learn from it? After Apollo 11, Tom Paine was the administrator of NASA and Tom Paine and several others including Von Braun and several other people put together a future mission and goal for NASA that included multiple earth space stations multiple moon bases multiple bases on Mars multiple launch vehicles and that increased the budget sevenfold it was tone deaf it did not Express what was going on in the country at the time or what was going on in Congress. They were seeking to be aspirational without the support. And Payne, shortly after Payne put his report together for the future director of direction of NASA, it landed with such a thud in the White House that Nixon refused to respond to him on it, wouldn't even talk to him. And George Lowe was brought up by Tom Paine to be deputy administrator. And shortly after Lowe came up to Washington, Payne resigned because he had absolutely no influence in the White House. And for a year, year and a half, George Lowe was acting administrator. And he seized the day and took his real realpolitik to the table Resize NASA to reflect current budget needs, spent countless hours going to every single person in Congress and in the Senate that was involved in uh, appropriating for NASA to get everybody on the same page, to figure out what would be realistic, to keep his enemies close, and to understand where the temperature was out in the country for NASA. And he quickly pivoted away from large big ticket items into smaller long tail items. The big ticket item was the shuttle. But he pushed that off over a number of years so the development cost was less painful. And so instead of asking for 10 big things, he asked for one big thing. And in reducing that budget, he put in a lot of very impactful little things. Around satellites, maintaining uh, the outer planet uh, robotic so he missions.
0: He listened. He listened to the environment. Yep. You say he listened to the environment, and it was amazing because he was able to change Nixon's viewpoint. And was it because he was persistent with Nixon with that? So, like, you think about it. So, he's a good communicator, and his real politics is understanding the atmosphere and is able to maneuver and make such actions to reflect the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, he was a realist and his realpolitik and his ability to communicate that to congressional leaders was not built off of some slick attempt to influence or to sell them something they didn't want or didn't need. He quickly realized that for Nixon, it was about jobs in California. You wanna get rid of human spaceflight and you wanna get rid of these rockets that are being built out in California. That's a hundred and some thousand jobs out of the state of California. How many votes are, do you have there? <laughs> uh, same okay. thing in Houston, same thing in Florida. We've invested in this infrastructure. We gained a lot from it. Dramatic pivots and cuts that Congress is asking from Congress make it almost impossible for us to diversify our workforce make it impossible for us to maintain the basic research and advancements that we're doing through universities and in science and technology that keeps us the leader of the world. And third, it will make it impossible for us to maintain all these engineering jobs and high-paying jobs in these aeronautic fields that are the future for this country. And so he became very pragmatic. Instead of being the person that that brought pretty pictures of moon bases and all of these goals, he brought it back down to jobs, technology advancement of the country, national prestige, and a realistic budget that they could accept. And with benefits that helped the broader economy, that helped their local states. And he emphasized, you do realize we're not spending this money on the moon. We're not spending it on Mars. We're spending it in California. We're spending it in Texas. We're spending it in Chicago. And so he had, he brought up statisticians and others from Houston whose job was to create briefing papers for each congressional person about the benefits and the engagement in their states. Oh, wow. Uh, And he, He just spent an inordinate amount of time doing that. At the same time, being a realist, he had friends within the White House, ex-astronauts who were close to Nixon, who were close to the budget director, who were close to other influencers, the president's science council, that could give him inside information and can tell him when he was barking up the wrong tree so that uh, he could adjust his approach. And once again, he listened. And didn't just force his opinion on people, and so that's why I call him the ultimate engineer. He he's just this round, rounded character, both in terms of leadership, management, administration, and engineering skill, right, and communications. That without him, it could very well be argued that we would not have NASA today.
0: No, I totally. But like coming to the end, though, I, I would love to go through his uh, 10 points. And sure. then, like the first one is pay attention to an inordinate amount of details, which I think is true. Like, as you said, as even as a good writer, and I thought that was a good point, at least for me, that it's finding that right word to define what you're feeling that touches your target audience, right? And then the second one I like was a design around human-centered design. What did he mean by that?
1: Engineers can get carried away with the joy of engineering. Yeah. And the biggest example I can give was around the Apollo 1 fire. The fire swept through the capsule in less than a minute. All three astronauts, while many people think they burned to death, they actually actually asphyxiated within the environment. And they were on the pad. They weren't even in space. It was a test a closed door test, but the door was so difficult to open that it would have taken 15 minutes, five people to open that door. Now the door, George Lowe always told people afterwards was a perfectly designed door by engineers who were really focused on making sure that that door wouldn't open in space. So they did everything they could to make sure that door was difficult to open. But there were no humans who were working with that door and no one was asking the right questions around what happens if there's a need to egress quickly on the pad. Mm. So the door was redesigned so that it could be opened in less than 30 seconds, actually down to, I believe it was 15 seconds. And both were great engineering designs. One was done simply To achieve that physical force against it not opening on its own in space. And the other was to factor in the human side to make sure that humans could do what they needed to do in various situations with that door and the human interaction on the door. And he Uh, often reminded people don't forget the user, don't forget putting the user in place. And that's how he approached. Congress. That's how he approached the American people. Don't forget your audience. Human factors engineering is just like uh, writing for your audience as a communicator. The engineer needs to design around the user of the vehicle or the thing they're designing. And the writer and the communicator needs to write around the audience to whom they're communicating to. And so he he brought that together because we can just get so excited around the whiz-bang nature of rockets and things we're building.
0: I like that. And then the third one is, is pretty self-explanatory, is listening, questioning, and uh, always listen, always question, and have the right questions, which I believe you had. But I thought number four was a really interesting one, which is avoid the smartest person in the room fallacy. Yeah. What did he mean by that?
1: Problems around the Apollo 1 fire happened because issues being raised at lower levels were not percolating up to the top because people were afraid of missing scheduled deadlines, and increasing costs. And there were people in management positions who felt that because of that position they were in, they were perhaps a little more arrogant and knew more than the people on the front line. And often decisions were being made at the top that weren't trickled down, or that the people on the front line who were applying those realized that doesn't work. And it happens in any large organization when people build their own little fiefdoms and tribes and departments and other places and cult of personality plays out. And so he created the change control board in Houston when he became program manager. And so not a single change or engineering request on the spacecraft could be done unless it was submitted to the CCB. And he chaired it like a courtroom. He even had a gavel. And all the people in charge would be there. And the person requesting it had to present and had to explain why that change was important. And everyone in the room had to debate it. And what he found was people weren't thinking about the unintended consequences of simple changes. And it wasn't until there was that debate and everybody got onto the same page and they approved a change that they knew that all the unintended consequences on the other systems and subsystems had been considered and were going to be taken care of and not lost in the cracks. But had that one person come to George Lowe and said, hey, we need this new switch. This switch has to be there, and it has to be the color red, and it has to buzz really loud. And George Lowe would just go, yeah, okay, I'm the program manager. I'm I'm the smartest person in the room here. I say yes. That was happening on thousands and thousands of decisions. In the end, the CCB changed over 2,000 individual designs on that spacecraft. 2,000 that had been ignored or fell through the crack and it cost three people their lives.
0: Because of the smartest person in the
1: room. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So number five is hire smart people. And then never delegate your decision. Oh yeah, this was really interesting. I, never delegate your decision making process. Yeah. I, 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 was like, I, was, I was like, wow, what does that really mean? never delegate your decision-making
1: process. Be responsible and accept the consequences of each of your decisions. And don't take somebody's word for it, particularly in a life or death situation. And it goes back to the lessons learned from the Apollo 1 fire. Responsibility that should have been at the top of the chain was being delegated uh, to areas that it really didn't need it. So decisions were being made in Washington, for example, by people who had no practical experience on the ground in Texas actually implementing them. And so that's really what he meant by it, is making sure that uh, the decisions are being made in the right place and that no one is delegating or getting rid of their decision because it's just easier if somebody in Washington does that because I don't have the time or want to put the work into it.
0: And then I like the fact radical transparency and saying you're sorry when you're sorry and owning up to your... uh decisions. I think that's very, very important. And then when he's talking about risk with number eight, what does he mean by that?
1: He had a famous saying that without risk, there can be no progress. You can never eliminate risk from bold, particularly bold engineering accomplishments. There will always be it. But it doesn't mean you have to be reckless. It doesn't mean that you can't push the envelope a little bit, but you can balance that risk. For example, picking the moon as a goal for NASA was very risky at the time that he did it, but he felt it was a very calculated and achievable risk as long as it got funded right, and as long as we're realistic about what our attempt was. It was to go, land, and return safely. It wasn't to build a moon base, it wasn't to start to colonize the moon or to do these other things. But he knew that just like with all kind of test flights and everything else, it could cost lives. It could, uh, it could fail. The rockets might not work. They may not get there. Uh, the technology might not advance. But he knew enough and studied enough to eliminate a lot of the risks and make it achievable. And that's really what he meant by that.
0: And then nine was leading by example, and the number 10 was focusing on the vision and have fun. And I thought having fun was kind of a, a good one to end with. <laughs> it, it,
1: it's interesting. George Lowe is, uh, he comes across in a lot of the histories as just this very serious, no fun kind of guy who's, you know, staying up till midnight editing press releases with snarky little green comments. But he was a very funny guy, and he would slip notes to people in meetings, and he would he would have a lot of fun in doing things and he wanted people who were enjoying what they were doing, who enjoyed each other and who really felt like they were gaining out of the sacrifices being made to spend all that time, whether it was working on Apollo or being away from your family or doing other things. Um, and so he, he had a great perspective on life, a great perspective on what it meant to work and, 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 and achieve things. And uh, he's an amazing figure. It's a it's perfect example of not only the great American immigrant success story, but really it's about a human purpose-driven life that impacted so many people. Uh, around the world, and, and I'm just thrilled that I was able to bring George Lowe's story uh, out of the shadows and put a spotlight on it.
0: As a last question, having written this book and spent so much time with George Lowe, because you're writing about him and you're you're breathing and living him while while the words are flowing on into the computer, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is your three takeaways from him that you're implementing in your own life?
1: I think the the, the two, and probably. The three. The first one is definitely this uh, pay attention to detail. You know, as writers, through the creative process, deadlines drive you towards an end, but it doesn't mean that you can't spend more time having a critical eye on it, get audience feedback, share your work, uh, work with it, craft it, continue to hone it and improve it. For me, that paying attention to detail means I need to be less. Closeted with my work early on, and I need to be brave enough to let other people, whether it's my boss or members of the team or others, early in on the pipeline of the creation and not wait for the big reveal because they're going to pick up on details, they're going to see things that I'm missing, and that when we do get to the great reveal, it's just going to be a better product in the end. I think, as writers and communicators, we get so caught up in the world that we're creating or the message that we're creating, that we get a little bit disconnected from that. And I, the hardest thing for me when I was working on the book or the previous book was sharing those early drafts with people and, and hesitantly waiting for that feedback. Did it land? Did it not land? And God knows there are plenty of revisions and plenty of changes based on that feedback. But I never would have seen those details because they were lost to me. Second one is asking the right questions. Because I never met George Lowe, and I relied a lot on his diaries, I felt like in in his own writings and speeches, I felt like I was getting a one-dimensional perspective on him. And I wanted to stress test that from people who worked with him, who knew him, from his family, from his colleagues, from his students. So I've gone back and I've listened to some of my initial interviews when I didn't know anything about George Lowe versus later. And I would really, I I ended up going back to a number of those people and asking the right questions to dig deeper and to push and to reveal layers of the onion that I left on before because I wasn't asking about his perspective on things or his choice of music or his preference for certain decisions as opposed to simply, I was looking at bigger picture things. So... Learning to ask the right questions uh, as a communicator is huge to do. And finally, that idea of if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. If, it, if, it's, if you don't have a passion for what you're doing, it's not a career. It's just a job. And if that's what you want out of life, great. But you have to have passion that drives you. I, my day job is in the investment and real estate world. And while I love marketing and communications, my passion is around telling stories and the space program. And so channeling all of that into something that I have passion for makes all the difference. And uh, those are the three things.
0: And then my last, 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 last question. I just want to keep talking with you. What is your life hack?
1: What is my what? Life hack. My life hack?
0: Yeah, what's your life hack?
1: What do you mean by that? How
0: do you, uh, what's your wisdom? Where's the wisdom that you tell your family? What's What's the thing you've learned in life or what is something that that makes your life easier?
1: It can be all of those things. Don't stress the things that you can't control. I spend more time stressing about those things that you can control and plan for them. And that's something perhaps that I learned from George Lowe. People spend an inordinate amount of time talking about bad luck, about their situation, about getting a bad project, and, oh, so-and-so got the good project, I got the bad project, woe is me. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you you hear that about some universities, oh, you went to that school, right? Well, no, I I went there to learn, they had a library, they had professors, I, I got something good out of it. It's what you put into it, right, that makes the difference. So For me, one of the things I try and tell my children and what I tell the teams that work for me is that what you're doing now isn't what you're going to do two years from now or five years from now, but what you're doing now, you are spending the most valuable resource in the world on, your life force and your life energy.
0: Right.
1: Not replaceable, not buyable for any amount of money. You can't get it back. Make it worthwhile. Don't woe is me. The woe is me part is you're wasting the time. Turn, you know, lemons into lemonade and do something wonderful, even if somebody else doesn't think highly of that project. You need to think highly of it. You know, declare it a good day. Declare it that I'm gonna learn something from this, that I'm gonna make something out of this, that I'm going to do something that adds equity and value to my life experience. Otherwise, get another job. Do something different.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Richard, I could talk forever with you. I think we're like, <laughs> this has like been the most amazing interview. Thank you so much for shedding light on this wonderful man that captured the imagination of the President Kennedy and really saved the space program and gave us so much to the world. That And I'm so glad you wrote about it so people can get an eye on the ghost. What did you say?
1: The ghost of? He's the ghost in the machine, right? He was the heart and soul behind NASA. Heart and soul, yeah. When he he left, many people said that NASA forgot a lot of those lessons about risk and reward and about the CCB and controlling engineering changes. And shortly thereafter, we had the the Challenger accident that was a poor management decision. And so many other incidences where I have heard people in NASA say, you know, if the George Lowe culture had been there, and what he put into place was still there at that time, that might not have happened.
0: Well, thank you, George. And thank you, Richard.
1: Thank you, Torrin. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you happen to like this episode, please share with your friends. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and how we can improve and make this better or how this has helped you. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode.